Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's 1959. Charlton Heston's Jewish. The movie, Ben-Hur. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. How are you? I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. Now, you might know us from our other podcast. I do a show uh, called How Did This Get Made, where we talk about the best of the worst films ever made. And I do a show called The Canon, where we have you listeners vote on what films define the films you should know, even if they're not the best. But now we have joined together for a team-up podcast where we're doing something that kind of combines the best of both worlds. We are watching the 100 best movies on the AFI list, uh, and we're trying to determine uh, why they're there, if they belong there, and uh, what's the staying power? Why do these movies uh, have such an effect on our culture? Yeah, and we are one episode in. Now we did um, Citizen Kane last week, and what's been kind of blowing my mind is already I feel like we're seeing these connections run through the list, like yeah. shoot through it like electricity. I feel like as the show goes on, we're going to see these films more in conversation with each other. Absolutely. I think we're building this big uh, lexicon, if you will. Uh, yeah. Guys, I dropped lexicon. We're only about 30 seconds into the pod. This For- is a highbrow show. Oh, this is, we're not fucking around. Uh, Amy, the response online has been awesome. It's been awesome. I had my fingers and my toes crossed that we would get one type of response, which was, I've always meant to do this, and I'm going to watch along with you. And we got that from so many people, which just makes me happy. I love the idea that we're in a club. A hundred percent. So please keep on tweeting at us and sending us your listener art and giving us tips. I mean, we got so many good little tidbits about Citizen Kane that I feel like we should do like a recap episode after we do like five episodes and just kind of put all of our extra shit in that episode. We should. And I also want to give a shout out to Alex Charner, who did this awesome Citizen Kane fan art of the snow globe. And it was beautiful. It was all reds and pinks and oranges. It was very, very cool. And actually incredibly artistic, just like Orson Welles himself. You know, speaking of Citizen Kane, that's the number one movie on the list, right? So that set the bar. Now, I think it's only fair, only right to go to the very bottom of the pile. 
I think this is a good idea. Let's define it. Let's define the brackets. Let's color it in, and then we'll go to the middle. I love it. Um, so this movie is Ben Hur, and uh, let's get into it. So Amy, I have never seen Ben Hur, so I thought it might be interesting if I just wrote down what I thought Ben Hur was about, um, and I wrote down this: based on a Bible story? Question mark. A slave races for freedom and gets it. Jesus approves. <laughs> that was my interpretation. Now let's hear what you think. I can't remember who Ben Hur is. Like historically, I'm gonna I'm gonna say he's a barbarian. Um, from what I remember, it was a bunch of white people playing Arab people. Uh, Charlton Heston, I think, was a Jew, and he hung out with Jesus. I think maybe he meets Jesus, and Jesus tells him that he's a pretty cool dude. I think he like either fights a woolly mammoth or is, like, friends with a woolly mammoth and, like, has him as a pet or something like that. Bald guy, chariots, and there's cones and there's wine. Um, I think Yule Brenner's involved and probably Moses. And I bet he dies. I think he dies. That's Ben Hur. All good guesses. I think we're all wrong uh, because IMDb describes it as a Jewish prince is betrayed and sent into slavery by a Roman friend. He regains his freedom and comes back for revenge. Ooh. Mm. It's like Death Wish, but with like swords and sandals. Death sandals. <laughs> Amy, I want to ask you, when I saw that this is the movie that we're doing, and I saw how long it is, and it's so long, I was like, am I a bad person for not wanting to watch this movie? Am I judging a book by its cover, a movie by its length? I mean, do you ever feel that way? Yeah, you're judging a film by its overture. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> by the way, I like an overture, and this movie does have one. Do you fast forward an overture at home, or do you sit and watch? I technically went and made popcorn. Okay. I don't know if that counts. Does that count? Is that cheating? I think cheating? it does, because I think when you see a film, you can come in and out during the overture. I almost feel like every film should have a intermission and an overture because I think it helps the movie going experience. I need a bathroom break. I need to check my phone and I need to get into the movie at the top. So overboard with an intermission. <laughs> Wait, but I'm curious. Is this the longest movie you've ever seen? I feel like this might be the longest movie I've ever seen. Three hours and 40 minutes, right? I watched this movie for an hour and I paused it and it was like two hours and 30 minutes left. I'm like, that's Dunkirk. I have Dunkirk <laughs> left, and I've already, I've already watched a lot of this movie. And you've watched Dunkirk before you get to intermission. I had this thought when I hit play on this movie, you know, um, when I started watching it the first time, that this would be a terrific stoner movie, at least the first hour of it. And, like, okay. I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm not cool, so I don't really smoke weed. Yeah. But, but the movie, as it opens, is so slow and so ponderous and so synchronized. Yes. You have these three wise men turning into profile. You have this mooing cow. It's so deliberate. There's so much to look at that it made me feel high. Like time had slowed down yes. to such a way that I was like, oh, this feels like history. This feels gigantic. It felt like I had to give in. It felt like this film was saying, you give in right now. I think you could probably edit 40 minutes out of this movie and you would not miss – much of anything. But this is the kind of movie where we're waiting so much for the chariot scene. Like, I can't wait for this chariot yes. scene. Oh, this chariot scene is going to be the greatest thing. And then before the chariot scene starts, we watch all of the horses line up. We watch them have trouble lining up. We watch <laughs> them go all the way around the gigantic ring. All the way around it. All the way around it. Here they go. 
and you're just gonna you're just gonna get ready. It's like you you want to watch these horses go fast. You gotta watch them go slow. And what knocked me out about that is like you have this giant set piece. I mean, they filmed this on you know I, I think this was a, a former. Um, work camp in Italy like it's this it's, it's a gigantic old building it's giant and they really did I mean that's the impressive thing about this it's like it's real and, yeah. and I think in a world of CGI and stuff you're like whoa even just seeing horses line up I was like that's a lot of lot that's of horses, lot of horses. <laughs> and then like what knocked me out watching that slow shot of them just walking around the track very gracefully is that they were making fresh footprints every time they stepped down it was like yes. a fresh footprint so somebody between takes had to comb that giant racetrack to make it look like they were stepping on it for the first time. And that's when you're like, okay, this is what you mean by spectacle. I, oh, I get it. A hundred percent. Like that chariot race is like, I heard so much about it. I've seen clips of it my entire life. And then when you actually watch it, you're like, whoa, that is unbelievable. It really is like real horses, real racing, amazing stunts. Oh my God. I mean, I was, that was the thing I could not wait to watch twice because yes. Your palms are sweaty. I sound like I'm in Your palms are sweaty. No. It is nerve-wracking. And it's long. It take, like that. You really get the eight laps or how many laps that they're doing. And you're there. And it's like people it, – the fact that no one died shooting that. I know they broke cameras and they had all these issues. And the horses could only do like five laps a day. And it took months and months and months to actually shoot this sequence. Um, but it, it there is something about seeing real horses and real chariots race that – you know, in, in a way, it's like I wish there was a list of the best scenes in movies because I don't think this is one of the best movies ever made as much as I do believe that that is one of the best scenes I've seen in a movie. It, one of the details I think I love so much about the chariot racing scene that makes it so much more tense is that they keep cutting to the medics. Yes. They're like, people are going to get hurt. Here's the medics. They're coming out again. Oh, my God, are the medics going to get the guy in time? Can Are the medics going to get hurt? It was oh, like watching when- a rodeo because there's like one scene where they're, the medics are like pulling someone off like a second before all those horses are just racing by. Like they were doing amazing stunt work there. And jumping from like one carriage to the next, I, I was blown away. I will say the chariot race, I was shocked to be like, wait a second, this is just the pod racer segment from Phantom Menace. George Lucas just cribbed the chariot race. Masala is Sabalba, and, and Anakin Skywalker is Ben-Hur. I've seen this, like, down to literally the way that Sabalba is crashing into Anakin Skywalker. They're doing it almost shot for shot. Uh, I looked online after I saw it, and someone did do a a shot for shot comparison. It is shocking to me <laughs> that like George Lucas cribbed that and arguably the best sequence in Phantom Menace is the pod racing segment, which is amazing that it's just uh, Ben Hur's pod racing. Yeah, I mean, Grease ripped off the chariot race when when Danny Zuko is is doing the drag race. The yeah. other guy has like the sharp wheels exactly like this. He's trying to run him off the road. But wait, I love yes. I love the Star Wars reference because Ben-Hur is Star Wars. You know, there was the 1925 movie before this, but that's not really where the Ben-Hur story starts. It was a best-selling novel in the 1800s, and it was so popular back then that, can I just read you some of the Ben-Hur swag that used to exist? Oh, yes, this is amazing. It's so amazing. So Ben-Hur was a brand. Mm Ben-Hur is like Star Wars is today. When this movie is made out, it was an ancient brand when this movie comes out. This is like the Lord of the Rings. This is like the big tentpole story of all stories. There's Ben-Hur flower, cigars, coffee, perfume, oranges, tomatoes, whiskey, bitter, tobacco, shoes, shoe polish, bakelite, china, clocks, watches, perfumes, sewing machines, (laughs) tools, harnesses, whips, freezers. Freezers? Freezers. Trains, trolleys, cars, 
Bridges, helmets, swords, board games, puzzles, coloring books, cookies, wow. chocolates, horns, an amphitheater playset. Play with your own little amphitheater. Whoa. And, and the I amphitheater playset even had its own slave market, vegetable stall, <laughs> and gladiators. I, mean, I need to find the Ben-Hur playset. <laughs> well, you know what's so funny about that is this movie marketed the shit out of itself, but also the film is doing this like, we're so respectful. We're not even going to show you Jesus's face because that's, we like, we know. We know, like, what we're making here is, like, almost, we're almost making the Bible. Like, that's how sacred Ben-Hur is. But then the minute this thing comes out, it's like, you want a dish towel? Yeah, <laughs> we got it. Yeah, it's, like, fascinatingly Bible adjacent. Like, yes. what, what's really amazing about this film is how much it takes it for granted that you know so much about the Bible that all you need to do is, like, see a guy sawing some wood and you're like, that's Joseph. Yes. That's totally Joseph. And that when Jesus enters the frame, you only have to see his his wrist to know that he's handing somebody water. You see a wrist and you're like, oh, that's totally Jesus. And, you, you, like, the silhouette, his hair was perfect. The, the movie version of Jesus, it was – I mean, this movie, I would argue, probably – started that trend. I mean, he everything about him, the robe and everything. Yeah, and the only thing you ever hear Jesus say is when he's like a newborn baby in the very opening scene before the credits even yeah. start. You've had like, hello, it's the overture. And then you have this first scene of the wise men, the trumpets. I mean, by the way, this is a movie so respectful that when it finally starts, did you notice the MGM lion yes. doesn't even roar? He's like, oh, I got to be respectful. Out of this. respect. <laughs> by the way, I would say, and this is talking about the Bible yeah. thing, I wrote this down because if I said, if you're not familiar with the Bible... You're you're a little bit out in the cold because in that opening sequence is like is that a UFO that's coming down like we just see like this star like shooting a laser into this barn, and, you know. But like if you don't know, they they are not like walking you into it at all. And you could arguably leave this movie without really even like Jesus is like a side is is a side character that kind of runs through the movie. It's like this is like the Rogue One and G, and the Bible story is like Star Wars. It's like we're yeah, we're seeing like, the side thing. It's like Ben-Hur is Forrest Gump yeah. and then everything is happening on the side in like in like reality. But you hear baby Jesus cry yeah. in that scene and I think it's the first time you hear the voice of Jesus and the only time in the it's, whole movie. Otherwise, yeah. It's just back of the head and you know who that guy is. You know who he is. That through line was is maybe the reason why it was so successful or the reason why people flocked to it in such a well, way. Yeah, apparently MGM, you know, MGM had made this film twice. Yeah. They, they were the people who made it in 1925 as a silent epic. And when they made it in 1925, it was the most expensive movie ever made and the huge hit. Yeah. And so they're like, let's just do it again. So when they made Ben Hur in 1957, they're like, again, most expensive movie ever made, huge hit. But they sent out surveys basically asking people like, what appeals to you here? Is it the sword and sandals? Is it the action? Yeah. Is it the romance? And they came back, the Bible. So they wow. really leaned into that. There's almost this quiet through line that what if Judah Ben-Hur was the, was the savior? Because if, if you're a Jewish person living in this moment and everybody's talking about how there's got to be a king, he's got to yeah. exist, he's probably born about now, probably about the same age as Ben-Hur, as he points out himself. This is a guy who gets, who magical things happen to. A hundred percent. And then he gets crowned with a laurel wreath for being an awesome chariot yes. racer. And when he gets crowned, people look at him and the the uh, Pontius Pilate himself looks at him and says, now you are their God. And they're drawing this line the whole time that, hey, it could be this Jesus guy in a mountain who's just this guy. We right. don't really know who he is either. What about this guy? He's handsome. He races chariots. Did He's ben also Hur, really motivational. Yeah, he did a lot more than, I mean, look, his story is much more action-packed than Jesus's. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, this guy, I never see him have a meal with 12 of his friends. He's out there. He's like crushing it every day, doing the work. He's <laughs> fighting battles, you know, it's like, but there is, that is an odd, 
here's a dumb question, and I'm going to be okay with being dumb on this podcast. Is Ben-Hur even in the Bible? Is he a character in the Bible? Ben-Hur is totally made up. And, okay. And the guy who made him up is actually really, really interesting. Um, his name is Lou Wallace. He okay. had never been to Jerusalem when okay. he wrote this book in the 1800s. He didn't know Latin. He didn't know Greek. He didn't, okay. know, he didn't know any of that. Um, his mom was named Esther, which is a little bit of a weird creepy yeah. effect of why he named the wonderful woman, Rome, yeah. the romantic leader near Esther. But he was a Union Civil War major general. He was a soldier himself. And then after he was a soldier, he was like a buddy with Lincoln. Like Ben-Hur was written by a guy. This story is so old that the guy who wrote it is friends with Lincoln. Wow. <laughs> uh, he was like he hated slavery he really hated slavery okay. so that's why in a way Ben-Hur has all this anti-slavery sentiment in there the guy who wrote it was an abolitionist and then he became the governor of New Mexico while Billy the Kid was running around New Mexico and that is why there's so much in here about rebels and how to handle a oh, rebel wow. and how people get turned into myth I mean this guy was fascinating it feels to me that Charlton Heston feels older than Ben-Hur should be, right? Like, I feel like, but that's probably like a Hollywood thing. I know that they wanted Paul Newman to do it. They wanted um, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. Yeah, Marlon Brando was the first one I think they wanted. And everyone turned it down because the script was shit. Like, the universal take on this movie from everyone is like, yeah, it was. The script is kind of bullshit. And, uh, but we made it anyway. Yeah, Charlton Heston kept a diary, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, it would, what he wrote about this in his diary is he wrote... Rather tricky driving, but not much acting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, by the way, I've never heard a less convincing, I'm a Jew. Like, there's one thing I know, and it's that uh, Charlton Heston is not a Jewish man. Like, there is nothing Jewish about that guy. And apparently he did that. (laughs) The director, William Wyler, uh, who did a fantastic job with this film, Made him do that take over and over again. He's like, it's not, it's not working. He did 16 takes of saying, I'm a Jew. 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 And there's so much neck acting in this movie from Charlton Heston. I mean, I feel like I'm watching him like, is he having a stroke or is he emoting? There is a there is some he is an interesting guy to watch. I'm oddly fascinated and also like, this is not, is this good? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, he wrote about that in his diary, too. Oh, really? He said, it took me 16 takes to say I'm a Jew. Maybe because I'm not, I damn near decided I would never say it right. <laughs> okay, but Paul, and I he's had, an agnostic. I thought yeah. for some reason he would be like a, a, a devout Catholic because, like, I can't portray a Jew. You know, I'm not a Jew. And it's like, but he, he's, he's not, he doesn't believe in anything except guns. Uh, I, I have to admit something that makes me feel very uncomfortable to say yeah. this out loud. Charlton Heston in the rowing battle scene yeah. when he's when he's a rower when yeah. he's a rower which oh, I love the rowing scenes. Let's play a little bit of the of the rowing song. Okay, great. Now, as you're listening to this, picture sixty shirtless men in a boat rowing in unison. Apparently, there's something in my brain where like. Bearded, shirtless, angry, rowing Charlton Heston is apparently my masculine ideal. And I didn't even know I had that feeling in me until this scene. And it's not in the rest of it. In the rest of the scene, he looks pinched. He looks angry. Yes. He's doing his thing where you're arresting me and I'm mad. His Planet of the Apes routine. And I I agree with you. I feel like this section on the boat is a really interesting section. There's something 
more natural. Like you feel that he's uh, beaten down. It's been like three years and he's been on this boat and or on other boats and now on this boat. That rowing section was uh, was really amazing. It is. And of course, that rowing section has been ripped off a million times. Sure. Animal House. Oh, yeah. My gosh. I didn't even realize it. This is when the animals are destroying the parade at the, the end of the film. <laughs> they have the death car out yeah. in the heavens. Paul, I want to live my whole life at ramming speed. I love ramming speed. Come on. <laughs> also, while we're talking about the way that Ben-Hur has influenced pop culture, of course, there is a Simpsons clip. And I, I think this might be one of the running things is have the Simpsons referenced every single movie <laughs> in the top 100. Here is Mr. Burns with a movie about how awesome he is ripped off from a bunch of awesome movies. Drink up, Judah Ben-Hur. <laughs> you truly are the king of kings. Excellent. Smithies, are they booing me? Uh, no, they're saying boo urns, boo urns. Please, please, I hope that we have a hundred Simpsons references to a hundred AFI movies. I feel like we'll be very close. Like, let's just spitball it right now. What do you think? I'm going to say at least 85. Ooh, I'm going to go 92. Ooh, interesting. All right, tune in in 99 more episodes to see who won. It is astonishing to me that Charlton Heston won Best Actor for this. I'm just oh, going to say that. I mean, yes. Best Abs, Best Sweat, Best Beard. I'll give him all of those for the 30 minutes of this that yes. apparently I'll be thinking of for the rest of my life. But as an actor, what is he doing in here? Not much. I mean, he's doing Planet of the Apes the whole way through. I mean, it's oh, you. Like I said, it's a lot of neck acting. You can see those muscles. He only knows one speed. I think that's why the boat sequence is so great because it's different. It's a beaten down version of him. But um, it's not – I don't think it was a deserved Academy Award. It's just – and I think he is the reason why it's not um, emotionally co- compelling. He's not showing you any emotions. Uh, I, I mean, think that's yeah. true. I and think he's also like the true. fifth or sixth actor that they went to. I mean, and Leslie Nielsen read for this. Can you imagine? I, I mean, they they actually rip off bits of Ben-Hur's uh, chasing – in Police Academy, which I love, because yeah. like Leslie Nielsen must have been like, well, I didn't get to do it then. I'm well, going to do it now. On the making of the Ben-Hur DVD, there's Leslie Nielsen auditioning. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't down arrows with much conviction anymore. Met too many charming ladies to go about insulting the God of Love. Up marches as convincing as ever. Ah, I fought in Britain, Africa, and Spain. I'm eager to hear everything. All of us are. When will you visit us? Soon as possible, but not for several days. I should be occupied preparing for the new governor. Valerius Gratis is coming with two more legions. He still sounds like Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that he still has the same voice and didn't get it replaced and inserted with the new one. But but I like hearing the youth in his voice. He's a guy who's always old to me. Yes. So to see him young and to see him in, in there seems. reaches. Can we talk a little bit about the homoerotic undertones of... Uh, Ben-Hur and Masala's relationship. When they first come on screen together, I'm like, I felt something very similar to like, call me by your name. I was like, these two guys, they're grabbing each other's faces. They're pulling each other in and then very phallically grabbing these spears and chucking them into a wall, like thrusting their spears. Throwing them into a cross, a symbolic cross, because that's the problem that's going to divide them apart. I, I was... It was very interesting to see that on full display. And I know Charlton Heston is very adamant that that was not part of it. And Gore Vidal's like, yeah, I put it in there. Ha <laughs> But it, it, there is, it's, when you watch it, there is something electric about those two guys. And that opening scene is like, 
oh, this is different. This is a different movie. What I love about these two guys gripping each other's arms and grinning is that after that manly second, yeah. they giggle. And there's something so boyish in the way they laugh at each other that you can imagine them as boys through that laughter. <laughs> at you, at you, you've come back a tribune. When I heard that news, I drank a toast to you. We'll drink another now. I thought that that relationship was really interesting to watch kind of play out. And I think uh, they had maybe talked to Kirk Douglas at one point. To, they didn't want to play uh, Masala because he felt like he was like uh, just a, a a very typical bad guy. But I didn't think that at all with him. I I actually really liked that performance. I thought that actor did a great job, and it almost has a lot more heavy lifting to do because he's not like a a uh, you know mustache twirling kind of guy. He he's done some really bad stuff, but you also see him go through the emotion of knowing like oh it was an accident that they dropped a piece of shingling on the governor of Rome, and and that he does you know when he is totally beaten at the end of the chariot race, you know, it's like, it's the race isn't over. Your parents are, you know, your mother and your sister at the leper colony. Like there's, he's doing a lot there. It's, yeah. It kind of shocks me that Stephen Boyd, this actor with, can we just say like the best chin dimple I've oh, ever seen in my amazing, life? Yeah. He's so handsome. Whenever he's in this movie, it becomes 70 times more interesting to me because he's so electric. And you know, his line readings are, are not the smoothest line readings. Yeah. There's this one that really stands up to me when uh, he's talking to another centurion. He's like, you ask how to fight? Then no idea. You know, he does that dramatic stuff. But his ambition, I feel like, is really relatable. And his pride, and he's eviler than evil in the chariot race. Yeah. But then after that, when you see him on his deathbed, when you see him flayed, and the joy in his voice when he's like, the race is not over, he's terrifying. It's wicked. I mean, that scene reminds me of The Dark Knight. It reminds me oh, of, yeah. of Two-Face in the hospital bed. And it's shocking to me that Ben-Hur won Best Supporting Actor, but not for him. Really? Who won it? Uh, the guy who plays Sheik Elderam, Hugh Griffith, the guy oh. in, the, in the very dark, the yes. Arab face. Yes, the Arab face, which I, I had said that this movie flirts with racism, but never fully goes there. Because I was like, oh, I'm surprised at how muted that performance is, like to a certain degree. Like I actually like that character a lot, but he didn't seem to be playing into stereotypes more than like Sala does in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, there's something about him that I really love that character uh, a and lot. And I like how he comes in and you have all this formality like we've been yeah. talking about and he's burping and asking other people to burp and he's yeah. wiping his hands on men. I, yeah. At first I was like, is he wiping his hands just on women? Because he's a guy with a bunch of wives when his hands are dirty when he's eating. But it's just a dude with a beer. One wife. Oh, one God, that I can understand, but one wife that is not civilized. Was the food not to your liking? Indeed. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The Sheik feels more alive than anybody in this film to me. I agree, and I think that that's always the interesting thing to watch, is taking this dialogue, and I know that they had a lot of problems with the dialogue in this film. Originally, it was too modern, and then they tried to make it more lofty, and I think they kind of fell in this middle ground, you know, and then, for a lot of it, no dialogue. And I think to be able to make it feel like he felt alive, like in that character, so much so that, you forget that he's wearing Arab face. Uh, like, you know, like you're just like, oh, I, I'm engaged by this performer. Yeah. And he has that really interesting scene when he goads 
Stephen Boyd's Masala into betting a ton oh. of money on this one horse race, the horse race that, you know, destroys uh, Masala's life. You know, he's sticking his his stick in this trunk of coins and like rotating it like it's a witch's brew. I, I love mean, it. And unmanning him. He's basically saying, doesn't anybody in here believe in you enough to bet money on you the way that I bet on Ben-Hur and these horses at these stakes? And there's actually a strange line, Paul. You're talking about like the weird dialogue. It is just from the very beginning of the film that I feel like really highlights what you're saying about how there's this mix of like the ponderous and and the stentorian with the casualness. And this is yes. from when Mary and Joseph show up at the gates of Jerusalem, which oh. I've been to, by the way. And they, yeah. they do a decent job making it look like that. What I like about this clip is just how at the very end of it, the guy suddenly sounds like he's in, I don't know, like a gangster movie. Name? Joseph. What city? Nazareth. What family? David of Bethlehem. And the woman? My wife. Move on. See your candidate of Bethlehem. Come on, come on. <laughs> that come on, come, come on. Come on, come on. It's like the most tossed away line. And you're like, come on, come on. It just pops in this crazy world. Letting him like into a club or something like that. But anyway, come on, come on, come on. Let's talk to a stuntman about Ben-Hur after the break. Support for today's show comes from HelloFresh. Amy, do you know what HelloFresh is? Is it delicious food that comes right to my house and I can cook it and make a meal and feel all fancy? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, they're going to not only shop, plan, and deliver your food, but they're going to give you step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And guess what? They got classic veggie and family different types of meals to pick from. I mean, this is this is no messing around. What I like about HelloFresh is when I'm just left to my own devices in the kitchen, I make the same three meals over and over and over again. Ooh. I make a good like Caesar dressing, but you don't want me to eat my Caesar dressing every day. I want some new stuff. I want a challenge. Yes, exactly. And this is what's so cool is that HelloFresh makes it easy for you to cook. I mean, they sometimes even have like these um, one pot recipes so you don't have to like clean up your kitchen all night, but they also challenge you. If you like to cook but need to kind of just get out of your comfort zone. They will get you there. I've cooked things here that I've been impressed with myself. I'm like, I didn't know I could do that. It actually gives you more confidence in the kitchen. Plus, it's good for the environment because everything is recyclable and insulated packaging. And it's all made from fresh, uh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated trusted sources. Um, this is a premium uh, food delivery service that is actually quite delicious. Um if you would like to try HelloFresh, you can. You can get $30 off your first week at HelloFresh.com slash Unspooled30 and enter the code Unspooled30. So you're doing Unspooled30 twice. That's HelloFresh.com slash Unspooled30. Let's say you and I cook some ribeye steak bernays with Ooh. rosemary potatoes and asparagus. But Amy, I don't know how to cook that. Well, you know what? I'm going to help you. Actually, I'm not. HelloFresh is. So, Paul, Ben-Hur is one of the stunt movies. I mean, the stunt movies. I mean, there's rumors that people died making well, Ben-Hur. I, I'm always more impressed with stunts in older films because I feel like it was much more unsafe back then. I feel like now there are protections that are put in place. People can't, you know. But back then, I feel like people were like, yeah, we'll just drop the person off the building. Like, yeah, it was like, we'll, we'll look good. We'll drop them off the building. <laughs> well, let's hope things have gotten better. And to prove it, or maybe disprove it, we have... 
a stuntman right here with us right now. His name is Christopher Lips. He was Johnny Depp's guy in the last two Pirates of the Caribbean films. Oh, my I've goodness. I've seen a picture of him in the dreadlocks, Paul. It's very convincing. I'm very excited. <laughs> I love it. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm a huge fan of both of your shows, so it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. I Stunts now look more professional or more seamless. But back in that time, like it looked like, oh, wow, these people are doing stunts. Yeah, like, well, you know, yeah, you nailed it in your intro. And in, in, in many ways, it's kind of a double-edged sword because while, while safety precautions and our equipment has gotten so much more advanced – they want it bigger and higher right. and crazier. So, so the bar is way, getting raised and raised. Like exactly. Like you're it, falling from taller and taller buildings. Exactly. I mean, there's more, you know, in the early years, I mean, the 20s and 30s, I mean, the conditions were crazy. It was rough. And, and you know, the actors, they were, they were, they could do it all back then because right. the studios were like, hey, we're making this movie. You got to learn how to sing, got to learn how to dance. Oh, by the way, there's some acrobatics, you know, so they- You're they, riding they, horses. Yeah, you're doing I mean, everything. They went yeah. for it. And, and while there was a lot of, um, a lot of planning in the design phase- when they got to the set, they kind of just went for it. I mean, there's that great yeah. story of Buster Keaton in uh, uh, Sherlock Jr., the 1924 film, where he's running along top of the train, and it's it's the big water tower, mm-hmm. and it comes to the end of the train. He grabs the water tower, and it lowers him down. He lands on the tracks, and then the water dumps on him. He broke his neck. He didn't discover that he fractured Whoa. his neck until years later. But, I mean, he, he just, wow. they just went for it. They were yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I can, I'll, I'll just grab this and ride down. And, I mean, it, it – it, the volume of water that hit him and the weight just yeah. threw him to the tracks and he fractured his wow. neck. So, and I mean, wow. in the original Ben Hur, somebody died doing the chariot race. Absolutely. Yeah. The 1925 Ben Hur, uh, a stuntman was killed and five horses died. And well, so, when they went to do you know, the remake, yeah. obviously in, in the 50s, they were like, well, we can't have that again. And obviously, conditions had improved and things. But it, the, a great story behind that is um, one of the earliest and sort of one of the, the stunt pioneers was Yakima Canute. Uh, he's from Washington, so they named him after Yakima, Washington. Oh. Anyway, he was the second director on. Ben-Hur and his son, Joe, um, uh, was, uh, Charlton Heston stunt double. Oh, so wow. the the big chariot race uh, that yeah. was all Joe Canut that did yeah, it's all like that a, stuff. It was yeah. like a family affair. I mean, Yakima Canut did m- so many of the awesome westerns. He oh was yeah, like he the was guy the man. who could he like was spin around on horses, like he was dancing with it while it was running. Yeah, well, he was a ro- he was an ex rodeo cowboy, and then he he did the early silent movies and just did. I mean, any western they went to him because he was the man. And then yeah, he he climbed the ladder and I mean he's a legend. Talk to me about like the the union of stuntmen and not like the physical union, but like, like, is there a community of people or are you more in your own sex? Like, are there cliques of stuntmen? Yeah, there are cliques. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Oh, like I'm a diver stuntman. I'm a horse Or I'm like, I'm over here. Like, yeah, the motorcycle guys (laughs) and the car guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there are sort of those little circles, but I mean, you know, we're in the Screen Actors Guild. The the, uh, SAG was formed in the thirties, you know, and they, at at that time, stuntmen were, were pretty much just background extras. I mean, we were, and then, but you know, the guild was trying to, to gain strength. So they invited everyone in the union and and so we've been a part of the Screen Actors Guild since its foundation but um so uh, but underneath that umbrella yeah though you know they have the associations like there's you know the Stuntmen's Association Brand X Stunts Unlimited um, International Stunt Association then of course the female groups um, United Stuntwomen's Association and, and Stuntwomen's Association and things like that I mean, so are they rivals and if so do they fight because that would be a hell of a <laughs> by the way West Side Story coming on when you look back on these you know even going back to what we we're saying like the the old movies and old TV shows, are there things that are happening in those that we would never do again like that? Like in Ben-Hur, if you look at that scene, would you be like, could we do, we wouldn't do it like that. Absolutely. Would, I mean, and, and, and again, you nailed it. I mean, so much respect for those guys. You know, when Joe Knut did the, you know, that, there's that famous scene where the, the chariots have crashed and he hits the chariot and goes yeah. over. I mean, he, he busted his jaw on that. Nowadays, there would be 
two safety lines on us. Right. There'd be a separate rig going next to the chariot. And again, to keep us safe and from right. <laughs> to avoid being killed, yeah. there's a lot more coordination and prep that goes into it to avoid someone dying, right. be, you know, or being paralyzed or crushed or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, well, I want to talk about just the stunts, really the stunts, like really drill down to the stunts that we see in Ben Hur. I mean, because here are some of the things that happen: a chariot flips over, a driver is like spills out with horses running everywhere, a driver gets dragged, people are rolling out of the way of horses trampling them. People are getting trampled. People are getting run into walls. The horses are falling down. Chariots are colliding. I mean, and then, yeah, he leaps to chariots and busts himself in the chin. And it, I mean, there's so much trampling. There's so much everything in here. How was any of this? All practical. Out? That was practical. Those were all practical stunts. Can I tell you the, the one stunt that doesn't feel like a stunt, but impresses me more than most <laughs> are the two guys that have to come out and take the mannequin out. (laughs) And so they're on a rail, like here are like all these horses. And then these two guys are running in, scooping up a body and running off in a mere like milliseconds of being missed by like being trampled. Like that to me was, I mean, yeah, yeah, the real deal. I mean, they literally, they're, you know, I can imagine, you can imagine, you know, behind the cameras, the production team is just like, Go, for God's sakes, go. You've got two seconds. They're coming. Well, to me, what I think is so interesting about you, too, is that you, um, you know, I think what people don't realize, too, about uh, being a stuntman, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but you're doing, like, three different things. Like, one, you're embodying who you, uh, sometimes you're you're acting as a person who's going to be doing a stunt. So you're doing, so you're acting and you're doing stunt work. Sometimes you are uh, portraying someone who has an, especially with Johnny Depp, an established way that his body is kind of being held. And so you have to kind of mimic that, that's out of your own body space. And then you have to be safe and then hit these marks. It's it seems like the most complicated job that I've ever seen done. You're right. It stunts is a lot more mental than than people may think because, you know, I've got to hit my mark just like an actor, but I've got to be sometimes fighting an actor who I had a week of rehearsal. He had one hour of rehearsal, if that, before, yeah. you know, before we shot today. Now we've got to do a fight scene together. I've got to adjust for him. I've got to find my lights. I've got to find the camera. I've got to hit my marks. I've got to be worried about my safety and theirs. So there's a lot going on. And so, you know, we always say a daredevil is someone that could do something once. Like, right. Hey, I could jump off that building. Okay. We have to do it maybe 10 or 12 times keep it safe, work with actors, you know, get the shot. So there's, it's a, there's a, it, you're right. There's a lot happening. Well, and, yeah, you, well, and yeah. on that actor idea, I mean, you have actors like Tom Cruise, say, who always brags about doing his own stunts. And here, Charlton Heston talked about how he took weeks and weeks and weeks of chariot racing lessons. Like how, what is that line? Like where actors are trying to be stunt people. Are they doing that less now? You know, I will credit where credit is due because Tom Cruise also produces his films. He gets to call a lot of the shots that normal actors don't. And I got to hand it to him. And I know all of Tom's doubles, but Tom does a lot of his stunt work and probably more so than any other actor I know. What's great is there there are those actors that are ego free that understand that we're creating a character and they are responsible for 95% of that character. And when the action pieces or segments come up, we're responsible for that 5%. And they, it's all about building a character. Well, you talked about something that I want to go back to for a second, which is period costuming is probably makes it more difficult. I mean, because it's, it is cumbersome. And especially in regards to Ben Hur, those are not. Like you can't hide much there, right? (laughs) Like, you know, you are in short skirts, uh, you know, a lot of exposed skin and that to me is like, you know, and I, they they couldn't throw on a green jumpsuit and paint it out later in post. They were in those, those period, you know, uh, 
clothing and all the, and there weren't really the layers that, that could be hidden as well. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. That's really, I mean. Yeah, the togas have you. <laughs> is, is there one, and, and this may be just my own naivete about stunt work, but is there one thing that has been done that now has been like, we don't do that anymore. Like as like a thing that was a, was a thing. And now it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's funny you ask. And one of the things that really inspired me and one of my favorite elements of stunt work was high falls. I loved seeing a good high fall in in movie or television. We don't really get, I can't tell you the last time I got called for an actual high fall because it's all, it's, you know, we usually use a descender or decelerator or something of that nature. So there's rigging involved. Well, I was going to guess that what we don't do now that we did then was we're not just nicer to people, but we're like so much nicer to animals. I feel like we're a lot nicer to animals by like magnitudes of how much better we've gotten. Well, it depends if you ask uh, David Milch, right? On that that oh, show, uh, was that luck? Like nine horses yeah, died. That, yeah. was, that was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, Yakima Kanut, he was like famous for doing, what, what do you call it? Like an M wire or something where you tie the horse's legs to an invisible wire and you can make them fall whenever you want. Well, oh, yeah. Wow. So, well, they would, they, what they would do is there was, there were two techniques. So when they were, they were doing at full gallop, they would have trip wires to oh. make horses you know, go down and they would also run a line from the actual reins. So when they pulled on them, it would pull one of their hooves out as well. Um, and fortunately nowadays, uh, obviously all of that is oversaw, uh, overseen by, you know, the, uh, the humane society. And, um, you can actually train a horse to go down and you take those falls now quite gently and make it look violent. And the great thing is of course, then there's, then there's CGI that, you know, incorporates, you know, things like that, like Game of Thrones and Braveheart and all that stuff. Or it's, it's not, they're getting, well, I I can't speak to the the fact they're getting smarter or not, but they are definitely, um, there are humane ways and, and more, you know, for lack of a better word, acrobatic ways to get them to do that. So where they're not injuring. The horses have gotten smarter. (laughs) I mean, let's face it. I wasn't going to say it, but they are. But now keep in mind, those horses are owned by owners who, you know, who, they bring in a lot of money for them. So they absolutely don't want their horses yeah. injured or hurt. So it's, you know, there's those levels of safety. Talk to me in like the pantheon of like, and I won't hold you to this, but does Ben-Hur, is that in the, like the top 10 of like all time stunt things or like, what, like are there, is there a, like a list in your mind where you're like, these are like my favorite stunts I've seen on film or TV. You know, it's funny. It's like I, when I think of uh, air, air quote stunt films, yeah. I don't know that Ben-Hur would be in the top 10, but when I think of, those classic action films, yes. it's absolutely in the top 10, maybe top five. Right. So, you know, when it's woven into the story so seamlessly, it's it's fantastic. But there are those films that you could tell where the action sequences were born out of, you know, a, a bunch of people sitting around talking, being like, wouldn't it be cool if right. blank? And then there's this scene and then they sort of kind of build a story or, you know, a right. storyline around it. And you're like, well, that's, it, it stands out that much more. And, you know, as an audience member, I don't really, it, that doesn't really speak to me as much because you could tell that was like, wouldn't it be cool if we, if we could do this, this, and this. They run and into, they uh, yeah, they run into the special words. factory yeah. and it's like, oh wait, wait, where was this factory? <laughs> like, all right, exactly. two giant balls fall from the ceiling. Yeah. Like where did this yeah. come from? Oh, that was, that was yeah. 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 The one thing I really, really have been thinking I want to see is a stunt category added to the Oscars. Yes. And I feel like it'd be hard to gauge a little bit with CG, but stunt but, performers are just out there. They're doing it. But there is also CG and stunts mixed too, right? I Absolutely, mean, you know sure. that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, many years ago um, when, when CG was starting to come, become more prevalent, everyone, that was the big, you know, buzz. Oh, stunt people are going to be replaced. And it, it, if nothing else, it's actually provided more opportunities for us. I mean, I've been, I've been the actor several times and done face replacement. So they would, you know, digitally put their face on me and I became, so that was something that was never possible before. How weird Um, is that to look at? Yeah. It's kind of funky. I will tell you from just my own opinion to get this, 
to get a stunt category in the Oscars is going to be very difficult because number one, the Oscar categories, they're trying to reduce them as it is. Right. Number two, it opens up a big can of worms, right? Because, okay, you have the stunt coordinator, you have the stunt performer, you have the riggers who are responsible for the, all the, you know, the wires and hitting the marks and things like that. Right. If you're going to let one of them in, you got to let all four. And it's just, it's going to open. Well, I, just, I just think it's going to open up a can of worms that the Academy does not want to deal do with. Do you have anything like that? Is, are there like stunties where you get your name called and a big boulder comes running down the aisle and you have to outrun it to go <laughs> well, get Well, we are, we are in the, the uh, stunt, uh, there's a stunt category in the Emmys, which is fantastic. Okay. And then there is the, the World Tour Stunt Awards, which okay. is, which is basically the Oscars for just the stunt profession. Got it. And I'm, I'm honored to say, uh, I don't think that we'll win, but I, I did a fight scene in Pitch Perfect three and oh, we wow. were nominated in the best fight category. Whoa, so, nice. Um, yeah. My, my boss, the stunt coordinator, uh, Jennifer Badger, who is a good friend. She's been in the business for years and she's fantastic. She put together this amazing fight with uh, rebel Wilson's character and she takes on three thugs and I'm one of those guys. And it's so funny because it's like John Wick two and atomic yeah. blonde and pitch perfect three. <laughs> we're That's like, okay, amazing. I, we'll take the nomination. You know, by the way, on the idea of intelligent horses, I actually found a quote <laughs> from the horse trainer of Ben-Hur, Glenn Randall, and they asked if this was one of his hardest gigs, and he said, no, don't forget I'm the guy who trained Trigger for Roy Rogers. I had to teach Trigger to count, and I had to teach him to dance the polka and take bows. All these horses did was pull chariots. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, well, if it's coming from Glenn, yeah, I mean, Glenn We're is- bad-mouthing a lot of horses on this uh, podcast Yeah, what is, your, what is your audience? Uh, what's the, we are- what is your demographic for the horses for the show? <laughs> we only have a horse audience. <laughs> this has been so great talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you survived to come talk to us today. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And what like can we said, see you in? What, what, like, what are- what, uh, Well, I just what? finished up a an, an, uh, wonderful series, and I'm not just saying this because I just worked on it. Uh, I was Jason Ritter's stunt double on the TV series Kevin oh, Probably Saves yeah. the World, and I have to say, it was one of my- among my favorite projects to work on. Jason is a- absolutely, he is a- every bit as nice as you, as he's the sweetest guy in the world. The yeah. nicest guy. Absolutely. And, and the, I think the series finale, yeah, just, just uh, aired. So that's great. That's yeah. when you like an actor, you literally take a punch for him. <laughs> <laughs> hey Paul. Yes. Do you want to know what happens when ladies break society's unwritten rules like hey leper ladies you got to go hang out in this leper colony <laughs> is that a rule that's out in the world because i thought that was just a ben-hur rule well that's a good question and if you have that question we should be listening to the new podcast unladylike Ooh, i actually love this show it is a uh, podcast that's in its second season right now and it's hosted by uh, these two hilarious people uh Kristen and caroline and this week they're kicking off season two with a special episode featuring Comedian Nicole Byer. I love Nicole Byer. She's the best. She's the best. So funny. And it's all about dating and how to swipe right when the dating world feels oh so wrong. I have a lot of opinions on this. I want to hear their opinions. I am interested as well. And if you are interested in kind of figuring out what the rules of a lady are, listen to Ladylike and Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Because you know what? You got to know those rules to break them. Okay, we're back. But, Paul, let's get to the big question. How does Ben-Hur hold up? There is, I mean, there's so much movie and so little story. That's exactly it. And there's really not even, like, a B-plot. It's one thing. I mean, the B-plot, I guess, is Jesus, but that's, I mean, that's very small, too. It's not— Yeah, that's like a Z-plot that's also in the title. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting— 
thing. And I think they just kept on committing to the spectacle. And I feel like at a certain point, the spectacle was like, well, can we have a thousand people here? Can we do this with these? And then it was like, well, let's make our money worth it. Like, so we will show those horses lining up. We will show, you know, we will just pan through this crowd for a little bit longer. We bought 78 horses. We may as well (laughs) use them. We bought 4,000 pounds of hair. So we got to make a lot of wigs and beards. That's what we're here for. Um, you know, what's interesting, yeah. too, about this plot is that it's so inverted, I feel like, in the way that we would expect a story like this to go, a story of revenge, of a guy who had everything, lost everything, got it back, kind of. Yeah. Because I think a normal film would end at the chariot race. Like, that's 100%, the climax of the yeah. film. They're like, okay, he won, his friend dies, it's a little sad, he looks misty, he kind of stares out. There's that great shot right after Masala dies where Ben-Hur walks back into the ring, and you look around at this giant ring. You know, you have this giant statue, a statue I feel like you see a nod to even in Thor Ragnarok oh, when yeah. you're on the planet of Hulk. And he's looking at basically what matters to the Romans, and it suddenly looks empty. This giant stadium suddenly looks empty to him, and you have this idea that this game he's been playing is empty too. And then the film just spends an hour telling you how empty the game was, and it becomes a story about how he shouldn't have done it in the first place. And that's maybe the most interesting narrative thing about it. It makes it lose a little steam, but it's it's a strange twist. Do you think that that was intentional? And I, like, there's a part of me that's like, well, we need. I, in my mind, I'm like, well, we need to continue the movie because we got to get to the crucifixion of of Jesus. Like, like, and I felt like that feels like what they were trying to do and put in the film because that they knew that was their like bread and butter, like Bible their story manna from heaven. Exactly. And I feel like they're going for that. But now we get to see like, oh, it was all empty all the time. And he sees it. But you could have done that in five minutes. Yeah, because basically the dialogue of this film from as soon as he loses everything is people being like, chill out, Ben-Hur. You're only going to make things worse. Everyone is saying, don't do whatever it is you're doing. We don't even totally know exactly what you're doing, yeah. but just don't. Like, please. I don't, don't even do know this. what he's doing. I mean, he doesn't seeming—he seemingly isn't doing anything. Like, he's just rejecting being a Roman. That's it. Yeah. And it is interesting how his costumes become more and more definitive, like more and more personality as it goes on. He shows up in robes, oh, interesting. but then by the end, he's wearing a Star of David, which actually didn't even exist at this time. Uh, <laughs> but he's wearing a Star of David. He's wearing a headdress more. He's doing right. things he wasn't doing in the beginning. He's He almost, in his costuming, looks more radicalized throughout the well, film. Like He was like, I'm Jewish at the beginning, right. but now he's like, no, I'm Jewish. I'm I the am the, yeah, I am the of epitome of a, being a Jewish man. Even if I can't say it, even if I stumble... <laughs> Over those words. I mean, the last part of this film, though, is just 45 minutes of lepers. And I, we, oh, yeah. Let's cut to a montage of all the times people say lepers in here because it's <laughs> my, it turns out lepers is my favorite word. Lepers. We are lepers. Where are they? Look for them in the valley of the... Lepers, if you can recognize them. <laughs> lepers, outcasts without hope. Look, lepers, lepers, lepers. Oh, no. Go away, lepers. get away, no. stay away. Go away. We should, though, also talk about, like, Hayao Haraki, though, his love interest, Esther. Oh, I yes. Mean, she's basically, like, putting in the Gal Gadot. Of, oh. of 1957 in this. She's this beautiful Israeli woman who had been in the military. People at the time are like, oh, wow. you know that Esther chick, she could fire a machine gun. Oh, wow, I didn't know Yeah, that. and she's totally beautiful. Apparently how she wound up in this film 
is, you know, she spoke five languages. She was hanging out at Cannes. She met William Wilder, Wilder. I think it just kind of a party. And he was like, that woman. And he just remembered her. He remembered her and he put wow. her in this movie, which she has such a great face for it. But she is the only one with her accent. And so it does yes. pop. It's a little, it's a little odd. <laughs> I mean, it's also a very underserved character too. I mean, it's, I feel like this movie checks boxes without coloring them in. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got that. We got that. Like, I didn't feel that much of a connection between them. I felt like he lusted after her and then she was like, yeah, I'm into you. And then that was kind of it. I don't know. Am I wrong on that? Or did you feel it more? I mean, there's that interesting first scene of them alone where she's literally his slave Mm -hmm. and he's pulling her towards him saying, I'd like to kiss you. And it's fascinating because I think in sexual attraction levels, as they're sitting there with each other, they feel like equals, but they also know they're not equals. Right. That he has this choice to make her a slave forever, to give her a way to get married. And it teeters on this verge of harassment but I like that about it. Maybe I'm a creep, but well, I like that about it because it gives it all this complexity. You know, it's 100%. not really right for him to be hitting on her. And they also seem to know that. Both right. of them are aware of it, too, and they don't start to come together until he's been a slave himself. And oh my gosh, just the way that they look when they're lepers, they're wrapped in rags. They look like these wraiths. Oh yeah. They look like ghosts. You can't see their faces and they're just peering out. Even when they're in the leper colony surrounded by lepers, they're not showing their face. They're like, we're such lepers that even the lepers can't see us. What I liked about it too was they do a lot, and I think this is something that movies don't do a lot anymore, which is showing, uh, not showing, and letting your imagination take over a little bit. Um, whether it's the crucifixion, the showing of Jesus, even the lepers, like you're seeing ideas, and you, but you're creating it in your head. And I think that that actually in watching it was really fun because your head, your version that you're imagining is going to always be better than any visual representation of it in a way. I it's think. true. And I feel like the leper sequences almost made me feel more emotional than most things in this film because I just kept thinking about – Tirza, his younger sister, who thinks at the beginning she has a chance of maybe marrying Masala. Like, they're really into each other. And then he puts this fatwa on her family, and the only person she ever gets to hang out with until she thinks she's going to die is her mom because they're lepers. I like, know. what an about face. This rich, handsome guy gives you a comb. Everything's going great. He has some fight with your brother, and now you're a leper. Well, the fact that we got to go to the leper colony was amazing because I also had – and I mean – Maybe you're not supposed to know, but when they go into that jail cell, and they're like, oh, oh, like it's all in face, all reactions. I'm like, what's going on? What? You don't know what's happening until they sneak, until the lepers sneak into the house at late at night. To- yeah, that's like a fantastic sequence. Because yeah. it may, if there is a narrative thrust to it, in a way, that it's about Ben, her trying to figure out what happened to his mom and sister. And he just keeps being like, where's my mom? Where's my sister? Where's yeah. my mom? Where's my sister? That's two and a half hours of the film. And so we're about to see where his mom and sister are. And it's this great dark, shadowy expressionist pen. I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of this film has the most thematically interesting cinematography. I don't think there are a lot of shots in here that tell a story. There's just a lot of shots that say, look at me, I'm a shot. Look at me, I'm amazing. Yes. But that descent in through the catacombs to figure out where his mom and sister are is so tense. And then to see the horror on their face and to hear the music, because again, it's a moment told through music. It's interesting that they tried to remake this film but I feel like the remake didn't necessarily focus on the biblical nature of it. It focused more on the action nature of it because obviously biblical movies are do well, like Passion of Christ and stuff like that. Gods of Egypt. I mean, what, what Ben-Hur does better, I would say, than Passion of the Christ and Gods of Egypt is it's slightly more human in the way it treats enemies of God. Because right. when you look at all the extras in Passion of the Christ, 
everybody who's not Jesus or Jesus affiliated looks like a monster. They're all yes. demented and, and demonic. And here, you know, the Romans just look like, oh, I'm kind of a weak chinned dude, but I'm not the worst. I'm a human being. It's a story of kind of human being. Yeah. Like everyone, you get the perspective of why everyone's doing what they're doing. And it's not about the people being bad. It's about the groups having flaws in a way. You know, it's like they're not evil, but they're working for an evil organization. It's true. You know, and when this movie comes out in 1957, we're only three, four, five years after the height of the HUAC of uh, investigations of this oh, whole wow. idea of Hollywood name names turn on yeah, people. Yeah. So when Ben-Hur is standing there in front of Masala saying, I'm not giving you my friends' names, I feel like that feels fresher in, in the 1950s. Yes. Uh, this movie came out in 1959. So just a couple of quick facts. What was going on in 1959? Uh, average cost of a house was $12,000. So this is like, when you think about that, you know, a loaf of bread was 20 cents. Lady stockings were a dollar. A Kodak movie camera was $67. And uh, cost of gas was 25 cents. So this, in that world too, like seeing this must have blown people's minds. Like it really did. Like, I could only imagine because my mind was still blown by certain sequences of this movie. But like the, I think they did a cost analysis. This movie cost about roughly in our money one hundred twenty-four million dollars. We see that all the time. Yeah, one hundred twenty-four. That's, that's that's a weekly movie for us. Like, but to see like a movie that was maybe you know not even a million dollars, and then see a movie that's one hundred twenty-four million. Like, and I think that's its greatest takeaway is that scope. Its scope is huge, and the big fad. Uh, of the year that Ben Hur came out, and it's actually very appropriate for this film, was phone booth stuffing, which was fitting as many people as possible inside a phone booth. And that, to me, is what this movie feels like. How much <laughs> shit can we cram into this movie? Like, even the movie posters, like, Ben Hur is like giant in these giant letters, like, ah, oh, we're big. It's like, like this, it is of the era. It's like, bigger, like, shove it all in, shove it all in. I, like, to me, this movie feels like an amazing Sunday that you would see like at like, I don't know, like a, like a Fuddruckers or a Friendlies. And you're like, whoa, that looks so good. And then the eating of it is not, it's like, oh, right. Uh, well, these are cookies and <laughs> uh, so much whipped cream. How do I? Wait, I'm it, picturing you spooning <laughs> it to the rowing music. <laughs> it just, it's, it's empty to a certain, it's beautiful to look at without having any, real substance. There's no there there. And it, and I think it's an odd film to be on this list because, yes, it accomplished all this stuff. It won the most Oscars that any film has ever won. And then I think the only two that have now followed it since is uh, Titanic and uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Like those are the Which only- I think that's, that last film seems a lot like this one. Very much. Very much like this one. Yeah, it won a-, a 11, 11 Oscars, yeah. massive. I mean, it's the most expensive thing. It's it's almost that typical type of movie, to contrast it again to Citizen Kane, that buys its way into being important. A hundred percent, because this is not, again, it's not a movie that I don't think is, a. it's essential in, wow, they did that. I, I didn't feel moved by this. This movie should make, this movie should have made me cry. I'm an easy crier or something get me welled up in some way. I there's no emotion there. I don't feel like any emotion. Like even when he's at his lowest and he's, you know, just beaten down, like there's no like, oh, what's going to happen? Or, oh, his mom's a leper. It's it just sort of like a leper. Yeah, a leper. 
It's just like, it's just, that's what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, there's interesting moments of visual symmetry, kind of, but they're more interesting to me, like, academically. When you have the Roman general coming into the town of Jerusalem for the first time, the one who's going to wind up getting hurt and start all of this in motion, you have these interesting pans of all the Jewish people walking, watching him come in, looking as bored as they possibly can, looking <laughs> like hostile, bored, yes. who is this guy rolling into town? And then you pair that scene it's almost at the exact same point of the end point with Jesus walking through the same streets and you have the same people standing yes. there. I don't know if they're literally the same people, but maybe Probably. looking horrified, emotional, broken. Yes. And so that's a great contrast building here, the entrance of one ruler versus the exit, really, right. of somebody who's going to end up ruling the culture much longer. But I still don't feel like the, di- the, like- the thrust, the like, whoa, good job, Wander. So we've talked a lot about do these films belong on the list? And I think we both agreed Citizen Kane has this scope, this narrative, visually, emotionally. Yes, 100%. Is it number one? We'll figure that out eventually. But does this one belong on the list? I know that between the last AFI list and the AFI list that we're working off of, it dropped from 76 to 100. So if we're just thinking in grand in the grand scheme of things, like, What's a movie that should be on here besides that? Is there another epic? Is there is there a film that has more longevity than this one? I, I, I you know, I, I think there is. I, I don't know if, while it is a spectacle, I think that we have now created a lot of films that are spectacles, that are, you know, I always kind of go to Avatar saying, like, it was one of the best theater experiences I had. Like, seeing it was so cool. I don't remember a thing about it. And yeah. I think that, that there are room for movies like that, but I don't know if those belong on a list of the best movies that we have to offer. I might I might say that maybe the film to put in its place instead is actually the 1925 Ben-Hur. Oh. Because if we're going to reward the spectacle, that's the spectacle. That's the right. first huge, gigantic one. Its chariot race is just as good as this one. In that chariot race, actually, it even does a shot that we don't have in the eight in the fifty-seven Ben Hur, where they put the camera under the horse's hooves. Wow, I got to see that. I bet you can find that on YouTube. I'm sure. In that acting style, I feel like works better. You know, because if this is a silent film, in its core, honestly, yeah. because it is a silent film in its core. To have real silent actors, their eyes rimmed in dark. You know, the Roman, yeah. the Ro- the evil Roman in the in the Ben Hur is so evil looking that I think it fits better. But I think what we're kind of talking about is this idea of the emotions of this are rare. Yes. And maybe what I wish most of all for Ben Hur is that it. I guess it, I guess we wouldn't even be talking about Ben Hur if it weren't for this, but that it didn't have to become a Bible story. Yes, that it I could agree. be about that emotion on its own. But I guess. Maybe what Ben Hur is saying that we didn't is that we didn't think about forgiving people and making peace and not getting revenge until Jesus literally died on the cross, and then we were like, "Oh, this man had an idea," because the two things right. are just so intertwined. It's like you're not in a world of forgiveness until Jesus dies, and you look at his blood on the rain, yeah, and then suddenly you're able to look. And and I feel like under so should we remake Ben Hur? Should we do it right now? <laughs> you know what? The last one in 2016 made so much money. I'm sure that we would. <laughs> All right, so that's number 100. We've done number one. Where are we off to next, Amy? Let's go to 10. I want to have some kind of structure working our way through this. I like it. So we can kind of go from the top to the bottom. And we'll, you'll have to follow along with us. But I think this is a good place to go. And number 10 is, of course, Wizard of Oz. Oh, oh I'm excited for some Wizard of Oz after Ben-Hur. No, wait. I'm guessing that most people listening to this have seen The Wizard of Oz. So you would we, hope. Yeah. So we can't do like a, hey, what do you think this movie is about? Let's do another question, though. Okay. I like having people call in. Here's my pitch for a question. Guys, 
if we remade The Wizard of Oz today, right. not that we should, but if we did, who would you cast in all of the roles? Ooh, I love it. Let's say Dorothy and the, the three major ones, right? And if you have a great wizard, we'll be open to that as well. But I don't need you to cast her like her uncle or her aunt or anything like that. Let's just keep it. Let's keep them out. Okay, but can I cast my cat as Toto? Because I really want my cat to be in movies. Oh, you want it to be a cat, not a dog. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, modern. Okay, modern. yeah, you're allowed to do it. <laughs> okay, well, the phone number to call in is 747 666 5824, that's 747, like a plane, Mm -hmm. 666, like the devil, and 5824, (laughs) if you think of something that stands for, let us know that too. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode of Unspooled, if we taught you anything, or if you disagreed with us so strongly that you were driving in your car and you thought, come on, I just want to get in there and tell Paul or or Amy, probably me, how wrong she is, (laughs) subscribe to our podcast, Unspooled, on Apple Podcasts. And rate and review the show. It helps the show and, you know, raises our whatever. I don't know what it raises, but I think it raises something. So help raise something. It raises our moon. Yeah, that's right. It really, really does. Um, Thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, and everybody here at Earwolf. We will see you next week for Wizard of Oz. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.